Well, welcome back to our expositional consecutive expository series in the Old Testament book of Micah. Um, one of the 12 um, lesser prophets, they are sometimes called, but certainly not lesser in impact and significance in the words of the Lord and the prophecies and the oracles that they declared to God's people in ancient days. And still those words speak today to us. This morning, our scripture reading is going to come from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. We're getting beginning to get near the end. There's only seven uh, chapters in the book of Micah, and we'll be trying to uh, compress a little bit this morning and get all the way through chapter 6 with God's help uh, and your patience. Um, and, uh, but remember, there has been from the beginning, the book starts out, I've told you it's a book of great uh, judgment and doom and also great hope. There's, there are both weaving in and out of the book of Micah. And Micah has brought charges and pointed out the sin and the evil of both Israel and Judah, the southern, the northern and southern kingdom. And the southern, northern kingdom is already, by probably by this time, has likely been carried off into captivity. And Judah is next. And yet, there had come a revival and God had had mercy and there had been repentance and God had relented. And yet God also knows that that would not stand. It would not last forever. And so we're seeing today once again come back to the present and to, this, and to the problem of again of Judah's sins and waywardness from the ways of God. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the living God. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. On my people, what have I done to you? O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for, the trend, for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God once again speaks. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? You rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you, and you shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation. And your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the living God always remains. Let us pray. Father, once again, these are bone-shattering words of doom and judgment that is coming upon your ancient chosen people because of their sins. Your patience is great, and yet, Father, there comes a time and an end. Father, help us to understand this message then and now for us and how it applies May we receive the engrafted word with meekness and may it yield in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness, true justice, mercy, and humility. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States 
in this honorable court. Now, how many of you have ever heard that before? Quite a few of you. Very common proceeding in judicial matters. And of course, in that case, it's referring to the Supreme Court of our land. The threefold use of the word oye, and even though it's pronounced, it's spelled oyes with a Z, it's oye, that threefold use of that word is used by a court officer acting as a bailiff to gain the attention of people present at the commencement of a judicial proceeding, just like I read a few moments ago. And do you know that that's not only true now and has been coming out of English law and into our law in this country, that is exactly what is taking place in the sixth chapter of the book of Micah's prophecy that is our text today. Oh, not exactly the same wording, but the same principle. It is a legal proceeding that Micah is prophesying. And it's historically known in the Old Testament as a covenant lawsuit. There is someone bringing a lawsuit, and it is God against his own covenant people that have broken his covenant. And God is today going to summon, charge, and ultimately sentence his ancient people, Israel. In earlier chapters, Micah painted a pretty ugly picture of Israel, the northern kingdom, who got their comeuppance first, and Judah, who was spared for a while. But both sometimes, when you see the word Israel, sometimes it's lopping the two together. And that's what, in the text that we read, that was the case. They were just talking about both groups, even though their judgments would be at different times and, and more so severe for the northern kingdom. But nonetheless, Micah painted this pretty ugly picture of Israel and Judah because the people had rejected God's covenant, God's commandments, and his counsel. And though he sent them prophets over and over and over again, they refused to listen to them. They mocked them. They laughed at them. They scorned them. And despite the pleas of Micah and others like Isaiah, they refused to hear God's warnings. Now, we also saw hope in Micah. We saw in chapter 5 a wonderful hope of the promise once and future king that is coming, our Lord Jesus Christ, the king that came the first time and who will come in his second coming. That's great hope, but now it's back to the moment. And the time is coming to bring the inevitable judgment upon Judah. 
And yet, because Yahweh is just, Yahweh, the name of God, Yahweh is just and righteous. And because of that, he will not pass sentence upon his guilty people, even though they are clearly guilty. He will not pass sentence on them without a trial. And that's exactly what we have essentially here today in this chapter. We're going to break it into four parts instead of three. Okay? First of all, in this trial, there's going to be a summons. The summons. Secondly, the security. It's actually false security, but it fits the summons, the security, the standard, and finally, the sentence, the final sentence. So let's look into this portion of God's word in chapter 6. Now, the summons is in verses 1 through 5. If you were to read the text again, the first five chapters are the summons. And I'm going to kind of break that into two sections, uh, 1 and 2, and then 3 through 5. Listen again to verses 1 and 2. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and your enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. It's now time to have order in the court. I think that's actually our next slide. No? <laughs> okay. Another no slide show. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, that's, the, that's the, actually the name of the sermon. This, this is the, uh, what you're looking at there is, the, of course, for the whole series. But the sermon is order in the court. And it's now time for order in the court because the supreme judge of the universe is summoning his creation to act as legal, to bring legal charges, to bring an indictment against not the terrible Assyrians or the coming terrible Babylonians or any other wicked, evil kingdom. No, against his own covenant people, his own chosen people who have acted wickedly and played the harlot. You see, in this covenant lawsuit, the prophet Micah summons the people to hear God's charge against them. God has a problem with them, and he is bringing charges against them. And furthermore, the mountains are made witness to God's faithfulness in his part of the covenant. The covenant's got two sides. God's always the one establishing it, but it's got two sides. And God has been forever faithful to his, but his people have not. They have played the whore. They have been idolatrous. Much of that has been specified already and, and again today. We'll see some of that as well. Now, look at what happens in verses 3 through 5. Listen to, oh, my people, what have I done to you? This is God speaking. 
How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember that Balak king of Moab, what he devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God is saying, please tell me. I'm giving you an opportunity. Explain to me how I've wearied you. You know all that I've done for you, the ways I've delivered you. You see, this is quite amazing. This is the holy God of Israel, the king of the universe. And yet instead of charging his people directly right now, God asks his people if they have any charges against him. That's mind-blowing. Here is God, the aggrieved one, and he's saying, did I... Did I let you down? Did I, did I fail you? Was I not gracious to you? And furthermore, as you're going to see in just a moment, he lets them, the wicked, those that have profaned and broken his covenant, he lets them take a swing at the Almighty. He's going to let them get up in the face of God with their accusations against him. But it was God who had the right to be weary, not them. Listen to Isaiah 43, 24. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices this is God talking to his people but you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities and then in Malachi 2:17 God says you have wearied the prophet says you have wearied the Lord with your words but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? See, they're putting, trying to putting God on the stand. And yet Micah is recalling to them these parts in verses 3 through 5 that I read. What Micah is doing is trying to rouse their remembrance of God's utter faithfulness to the covenant. Micah is recalling the bedrock events of Israel's history, trying to get the people to remember God's unrelenting faithfulness, mercy, and love. That's the summons. Now, what about the security? 
And what do I mean by that? The security. That's in verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You hear the dripping sarcasm? And that's not God speaking, that's God's people. Speaking as if God has wearied them. Like God. Really? Isn't enough? And haven't we? Look at all that we've done. Look at all the laws that we've kept. Look at all the rituals we've performed. Look at all the countless sacrifices. Can you ever be satisfied? And they go from the smallest all the way to their children. Am I going to have to do that? Basically mocking God in their arrogance and vaunting pride. You see, God summoned Judah to his courtroom, and he brought serious charges against her. But surprisingly, Judah's response is to try to put God in the dock. Now, some of you know where that, where that expression, God in the dock, that's a book by C.S. Lewis. And the dock is what we call the, the uh, stand, taking the stand uh, in a courtroom setting in England. So the dock is the place where God gets put on trial. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to put the almighty king of the universe in the dock. They have an audacity to, to claim ignorance before the Lord. We haven't done anything. And furthermore, they say that God is picky. He's never satisfied. Haven't they given him sacrifices and ritual service? Isn't that enough? You see, and they thought because of that, folks, they thought because of that, all of those sacrifices, all those ritual services, all of those things that they did, they thought, surely we will be protected. We, after all, are the chosen people of God. God wouldn't judge his own people. We're not anything as bad as them. We have our faults. We're not perfect. But we're still basically putting it down the middle. So they fooled themselves to, to think. You see, they thought they were secure. They thought they were protected, shielded. And these things they had done would protect them from the coming judgment that those pesky prophets kept bringing and kept pointing out to them. Another minor prophet beside Micah had this to say about their finding security in sacrifices and in rituals. Listen, Amos chapter 5, 21 through 24. I, this is God speaking, I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight 
in your solemn assemblies. And even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Their praise songs were odious to God at this point. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, God had had it. They kept thinking, oh, we'll just keep doing the same old, same old, like we always have, plunk, plunk. Chinkle, chinkle. Drop some more coins in. Kill some more sacrifices. We'll be protected. (laughs) How foolish they were. And then God speaks in verse 8. This is the standard. In Micah 6, 8, it's one of the, as I've told you already, one of the best-known verses in the Bible, and for good reason. The standard has been set. Listen. He has told you. This is Micah speaking for God. He, God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Did you hear he said, but, too? That's a way of saying, look, very simple. This is not multitudes upon multitudes of things. It's really simple. You see, the standard is set. And God, in that text... God is essentially condensing the whole spirit of the Old Testament down to three simple principles. He didn't give them a to-do checklist. All he asks is what he's been asking from the beginning. And it's not about ritual and it's not about routine. It is to act Justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. To walk humbly with God. Now, I need to stop here and commend you if you want to dig a little bit deeper into what those three things are saying and take it, take it down a few levels down, then I would refer you to teaching a ruling elder, Sean Mitchell's excellent sermon on Micah 6-8, back when I had COVID uh, at the end of the year. Uh, And um, uh, Sean went into a lot more detail about all three of those, so I'd highly commend that. I'm not going to repeat that. Sean's already stole my thunder, so I'm, I'm not going to try to try to make it up now. He did such a good job, there's nothing I need to add to that except this. In a nutshell, what's this all come down to? The first two traits, 
do justice, love mercy. Those first two traits are really describing our God, our saving God, our redeeming God, our just and righteous God, our loving and gracious God. So you see, he's asking for justice and mercy. The very things that are in his character, his very being, his very essence. And God is basically saying, how about a little father like son, my children? How about since I am just and I am merciful, why shouldn't you be my children? I want you to be like dad. That's essentially what is being said here. Because I am a just God. You must be just and righteous in your dealings with others. And you must be also gracious and merciful. Even when it hurts you to be merciful. Because I have endured your hurt. And I am a merciful and gracious God. And how in the world can we, who are sinners, the stripes of which we really are, and of which thankfully not everybody knows, but we do. We know some of our sinfulness, and we don't even know and understand all of that. God, part of what he's doing still here is revealing to us more of our sinfulness so that we can see more of Jesus together. But you see, how can we who are sinners do anything but be humble? How in the world can we be vaunting and arrogant when we have been snatched from the very flames of perdition? From a just and righteous judgment, we have been spared. Not because we are good, but because he has been gracious. How can we be anything but humble? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. And that also means with your brothers and sisters. Now, The sentence is in verses 9 through 16. I'm not going to read that again now completely. I'm not going to go ahead and read that. But finally comes the verdict. Finally, now God turns back to the business at hand. And the verdict is in verses 9 through 12. And the sentence is in verses 13 through 16. Judah has become, through her sins, through her unwillingness to repent, she has become a storehouse, literally, of wickedness. God said, you've just, you've just pulled a giant you know, freight truck, and you keep dumping it in to your house, 
you become a literally a giant warehouse of wickedness, complete with crooked scales and unjust measures. And it's time for the judge's ruling. And he makes the summary judgment very, very simple and very, very clear. Guilty as charged. The gavel comes down. Guilty as charged. And you will go into judgment and punishment for that. The people of Israel had embraced, guess what? Going all the way back to Omri, the father of Ahab, wicked Ahab. He's basically saying, you have gone back and you've, you've taken up all of the very things I tried to protect you from, warn you against, help you overcome, and you went right back into the lap of idolatry, the way Ahab did in 1 Kings 16, 29-34. And now you will pay the piper. You've made wicked choices, you've filled up your coffers and your warehouses with wickedness. And now my judgment and my sentence is upon you. Metaphorically speaking, God is going to take his people to the woodshed. That's what he's going to do. And furthermore, he says to them, you think you just got all this stuff and you've stolen it from others and you've taken advantage and you've been unjust and you've been unmerciful and you've been arrogant and vaunting in your pride. But it's not just that. You think now that what you've got, you're going to get to keep. And he said, oh, how wrong you are. Furthermore, God says all their ill-gotten gain would do them no good because they could get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction is what they would be crying out. They could not get satisfaction in what they had achieved and obtained. How many of you... Perhaps, well, I'm not going to ask that how many, um, but I, I know some of you have, uh, even if you don't admit it. Uh, you've watched Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, which is the only really decent one. Um, and uh, the others, not, not, not hardly worth the time. But that was a great popcorn flick. And if you remember the scene when uh, Miss Turner is on board with all of the... Uh, uh, with the ghost and um, that are cursed, Cortez's, I mean, with uh, um, uh, Montezuma's uh, gold and the blooms and so forth. But what he's trying to explain to her at one point in time, he pops open a bottle of wine and pours it down. And of course, through his skeleton body, it just goes right through. And he chomps on a juicy, delicious green apple. And he can taste nothing. He can't taste, smell, enjoy anything, though he has all of this wealth. That's exactly what God was saying is going to happen to his people. You see... 
they could taste nothing. And because they would not humble themselves, God will humble them and bring desolation and scorn upon them. So you say, Joe, thanks again for that cheerful message today. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, thank God the gospel doesn't end there. Because this is a bad, bad place. A sad, sad story. Could there be any hope then? Can there be any hope now? Yes, there can. But, listen carefully, the gospel connection is real even here, but it's not explicit. In other words, it's not so obvious you can't you trip over it. You have to go to some more of the book, the good book, the Bible, and see others that may bring out that though God has and did judge his people and let them experience scorn and sorrow and suffering and judgment, yet God had a greater plan. And you see, the gospel connection is, as I said, not explicit in this passage. And that's why we're grateful for others' passages like the parallels that we see in, say, Isaiah 52 and 53. Go home, read that today. And see what God did when his people had to be punished. And yet he did not leave them there. But sent the one who would be the true and righteous servant of the Lord. Who would be the Lord's anointed. The servant of the Lord. Listen to Stephen Um and his commentary. This is really good. Talking about Jesus here. When Jesus came many, many years later, God's servant, um, says, is wise and exalted. He is not like those around him, like those Micah and Isaiah have both issued God's charge against. Yet, So in other words, he's innocent. He didn't deserve the the charge from Isaiah and from Micah. Yet he, Jesus, was smitten by God. He was afflicted. He was wounded for their transgressions. And he was crushed for their iniquities. And he was oppressed And judged and cut off. That's exactly what would happen to Judah. But the lion of the tribe of Judah would one day come. And he would be cut off. He was oppressed, judged, and cut off. This is the same language that is used earlier in Micah 5, 10-13. About how God's 
people would be cut off from their horses and their cities and their sorcerers and their carved images. God's servant was stricken for those transgressions as he bore the sins of many. You shall bear the scorn of my people. Micah 6.16, what we're looking at now. God is saying, you shall bear the scorn of my people. But it was in order to reverse the indictment. Someone else had to bear the scorn of my people. And Jesus did it. He did it. We would have been with the scorned and the rejected and the cut off. But we have been grafted in because he bore that iniquity for us. And brought the indictment to himself. So that we the guilty might go free. Oh, praise God for the gospel. My friends, on a practical plane, in a very, very level, simple understanding, we have a choice to make always. We can be like the Pharisees of old and their self-righteousness and their vaunting arrogance and their greed and their playing double standards or we can live with a heart that acts justly loves mercy and walks humbly with their God may God help us to do the latter amen let's pray father Oh God, we know we deserve what ancient Israel and ancient Judah because though our sins may be more sophisticated and less technicolor, they are still enough to have dragged us to perdition. But oh, thank you that one came who would himself be cut off so that the ones who deserve to be cut off might get to have everlasting life and the and the the beauty and the glory of what you have promised for your people thank you for sending us jesus thank you for father for your word for telling of that coming and father may as we live and walk before you may it be with greater greater humility, and may we be more just and more merciful. Like Father, like Son, we cannot be that without you and without your grace, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.